I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, if you think President Trump's affection for new technology, like Twitter, makes him unusual, you probably haven't listened much to how FDR used radio. That's where our faith in technological change is always misplaced, because people make these technologies and they use them the way they want to as people. We'll look back at the strange marriage of tech and politics and why people thought newspapers and photography and TV might bring us all together. They bring to them their beliefs. And that's why the technological fix to broken politics will just only ever be a temporary patch. Then ever get really invested in a TV show? We look at why we care about fictional characters so much. We're betting how much we care on the idea that the author, the character, will turn out to be trustworthy. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you're wondering what happens when politics and technology link arms with the aim of convincing you of something, imagine walking down the street in the 1930s in Atlanta or Houston or Boston or New York or San Francisco or Cleveland on a summer's day when FDR was speaking on the radio and you never missed a word because every car would have its windows open and and every store would have speakers on. So you just... Just walking down the street, you could hear the entire fireside chat. Historian Joe Lepore says that Americans and our politicians have long believed that technology could be used in the service of politics. And the comparison is often, of course, made to Trump, who bypasses the press by going directly to the people by by way of Twitter. Right. In some ways, very differently, a thing that's really important to to distinguish there, is when FDR talked to the American people, really everybody listened. First of all, there's nothing else on the radio when FDR was on. There's no, like, you can't switch to another station. Uh, There's no opting in, like, you're going to have to follow Trump or whatever. Like, people that follow Trump on Twitter are people who are followers of Trump. But the people who listen to FDR were everyone. Let me make it clear to you that the banks will take care of all needs, except, of course, the hysterical demands of hoarders, And it is my belief that hoarding during the past week has become an exceedingly unfashionable pastime in every part of our nation. Roosevelt had contracted polio in his late 30s and had been paralyzed, and he was frequently in pain ever since. And he might have seemed like an unlikely weaponizer of technology, but that's what he was. He knew suffering, and there was a kind of softness. Uh, when he talked about other people's suffering, he, he sounded like someone who knew what he was talking about. Not in the sort of fakey, made-for-TV way of, a, say, Bill, Bill Clinton. There's something a little more genuine about I mean, and there is more. It is more genuine. I mean, he was a person who had suffered greatly in this very unexpected way. Hmm. So he uses radio to great effect and with great intimacy. It becomes quite threatening to his political opponents because he's president and because he's so good on the radio and he can by- bypass Congress and go to the people for a mandate. He's an incredibly effective president. He really enlarges the powers of the presidency. Lepore is the author, most recently, of These Truths, A History of the United States, and she's a professor of American history at Harvard University. She argues that as new technologies have arrived on the scene, politicians and their supporters have, of course, used them for their own ends. And they, and we, have often held to the belief that this new invention is the answer. This is going to fix things. This is going to bring people together. And it does, sometimes, until it doesn't. 
Lepore says, as we watch Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg get hauled before Congress and we worry about everyone living in their own bubble, stoked by Twitter and Fox News and MSNBC, she worries that the machinery of government is on fire. This is a story I would probably only, or a theory I would only float on your show. But if you think about the mad scientist across history, so the mad scientist moves from being uh, a chemist in the 19th century to a biologist in the beginning of the 20th century. Then the mad scientist is a physicist. And now the mad scientist is always a computer scientist, right? Like it's whatever thing we have thought was so great and going to save the world. And when we find out it's not going to save the world, then we start having ethical conversations. In some ways, though, our belief in the transformative power of new ideas to change politics, well, first, it isn't wrong. And second, it goes way back. The framers of the Constitution talked about the Constitution as a machine. They were they had a kind of notion of mechanical philosophy. This, this is one of the great insights of the Enlightenment, right? So you have Isaac Newton says gravity. There's a law of gravity, and we can watch objects in the physical world. We can predict the way that they will move. We could build machines that could use that force, that force of gravity. Well, the framers of the Constitution believed, as Enlightenment philosophers did, that all human behavior could be reduced to these same kinds of laws, like the law of gravity. There'd be laws of nature, not laws of humans' behavior. And that they, if they could design a constitution, kind of, you know, like a gold, Rube Goldberg machine, like building a better mousetrap, they could perfectly balance, you know, almost like a system of checks and balances in a physical world. If they could make such a system, such a machine in the political world, then it would go on and on and on indefinitely. So when the system didn't really seem to work, they often were seduced by the idea that technological fixes could make that little tinkered adjustment to the machine when it started to seem to have like a bit of a kink in it. And that was just the beginning of our belief that political problems could have technological solutions. New, cheaper newspaper presses could spread information to lots more people and create an informed public. But as you might know, information isn't always reliable. Newspapers can get tabloidy. Outlets can be partisan. The abolitionist Frederick Douglass thought in the mid-19th century that steamships and telegraphs would change everything because, quote, a revolution cannot be confined to the space or the people where it may commence, but flashes with lightning speed from heart to heart. And to be fair, he wasn't wrong about steamships and telegraphs. They absolutely change things. Douglas is is really kind of invoking Benjamin Franklin there. Franklin, when he was trying to explain like what the Enlightenment meant, he he kind of talked about lightning, like when lightning strikes and it illuminates everything. And this is this real, uh, I don't know, just there's a kind of weakness in people that want to argue for the transformative power of technology to invoke the striking of of lightning. So. You know, Douglas had a broad faith in technology as progress, and then he had some specific forms of optimism, which which were around transportation and communication, but also representation. Douglas was a huge advocate of photography as the most democratic art. He thought that photography could help end slavery, but not just end slavery, but actually end racial discrimination. Because if people could be depicted accurately and not in racist caricatures, no one could really believe the lie of racism anymore. If you could look at a photograph of a person and say, this is a person like I am a person, mm-hmm. you couldn't believe that people, other people were not human. And it's, it's just actually such a stirring belief to believe that that's what photography would do. And in some ways, he's kind of right. I mean, it, but it's more right to say that when people see themselves 
in photographs and their ancestors in photographs. So you have a you have a photograph of your grandmother all of a sudden. Then you can see your own worth in a way that really matters. But you can think about how the the, the correctness of that argument when you think about something like Black Lives Matter, right? Which is a social movement, a protest movement, but that has a very specific relationship to a technology of communication. In fact, a, a form of photography, which is live streaming, right? I mean, it really starts in the early 1990s with Rodney King, whose beating was captured on a camcorder. And, you know, what, Frank, what Frederick Douglass believed about photography, which would also involve photographing the institution of slavery was that if you could lift it, like the white people just couldn't see. They just couldn't see their way clear. They couldn't see that black people were human and they couldn't see how evil slavery was because they didn't ever see it or, you know, white people in the North didn't see mm-hmm. it. And if you could just lift that veil and people could see what people's lives were actually like, we would all treat one another better. And this mm-hmm. injustice, this gross, just just horror, genocide would end. And that's what Black Lives Matter also believes, right? If we could just lift the bill, if we could just show, we have this footage of Tamir Rice, and it doesn't, like, then justice doesn't come. Right. right? Like, although, what, what happens know, in those trials? Like, that's, it's it's both. You know, although one of the first things I just, that popped into my mind when you were talking about Douglas and, like, that theory about photography being a breakthrough technology is that uh, very famous photograph of the girl running down the street naked in Vietnam because... The area had been napalmed. And in some ways, photography does bring like was a technology that brought uh, realities to people who are nowhere near those realities. Sure. And did could change perception. Like your listeners could call in with a long list and it would be really thrilling to make. I mean, you think about the Farm Security Administration photography of Dorothy Lange. I mean, we can make a long, long list. But on the other hand. You know, you could point to the postcards of lynchings that were souvenirs, right? That's where our faith in technological change is always misplaced because people make these technologies and they use them the way they want to as people. With They bring to them their beliefs. And that's why the technological fix to broken politics will just only ever be a temporary patch. Hmm. Um, so let's go back to another technology, uh, radio, for a minute, because that, too, was seen as a political tool that could maybe knit the country together. Um, in the early part of the 20th century, radio was really popular, uh, and President Herbert Hoover believed in its power. How effective was it? Radio was extremely effective as a political tool, actually in preserving American democracy, chiefly because of Hoover's reforms. Hoover was an engineer, and he, before he became president, was Secretary of Commerce, which he liked to describe as a position better referred to as undersecretary of everything because he just decided (laughs) he was in charge of everything. And one of the things he was in charge of as an engineer is he just like, you know, this medium is really important, uh, but the federal government needs to have a role. We should treat this like a utility. We need to have regulations. We need to have equal airtime for different political positions. We need to use it to foster political debate. This could become a tool of tyrants uh, or it could just be consumer crap. So the Federal Radio Act of 1927 is the last great act of the progressive era, and it is the forerunner of what becomes the FCC. Uh, And much that is good in American broadcasting, we should thank Herbert Hoover for. Much that is bad on the Internet, we should blame the people who revised Hmm. the FCC with the 1996 Telecommunications Act. But uh, Hoover himself was actually terrible on the radio. He just, he if you listen to him, it's, you just sort of, you feel sad for the guy. Like, I actually really quite like Hoover. I think he's a really, is a, was a really interesting and often misunderstood heroic American and uh, hardworking Republican public servant. 
But yeah, he was terrible on the radio and he tried to use it and he just, it just was, it was a disaster and he didn't really see its particular promise. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking to historian Jill Lepore, a professor at Harvard and staff writer for The New Yorker. And we're looking at the long, long intertwining of tech and politics. Um, so let's talk a little bit about a term that we throw around all the time now, uh, fake news. Uh, in the late 1930s, the Nazis were using radio for largely that purpose to put out fake news. And along comes Orson Welles, um, and he creates this radio drama from the novel The War of the Worlds, and um, he broadcasts it in 1938, right as kind of conflicts in Europe are intensifying. And we're going to play a little clip from it. Uh, the idea behind the whole thing is that it's a report, a fake report, obviously, on a Martian invasion of America. And this is a part about the takeover of New York City. This is the end now. Smoke comes out, black smoke drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running toward the East River, thousands of them, dropping in like rats. Now the smoke's spreading faster. It's reached Times Square. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They, they're falling like flies. What does um, sort of this broadcast and the kind of rise of concern about fake news in the 1930s tell you about what was happening to this technology, to radio at that time? Yeah. So, you know, the debate over whether what you read in the newspaper is true or not or what you hear on the radio or watch on television or read in the Internet, like that's an evergreen, right? From the very start of newspapers, there are fights about whether your newspaper is full of lies. No, your newspaper is full of lies. Uh, so there's a lot of that just kind of partisan squabbling. The, something closer to uh, an epistemic crisis really begins with radio. Because although it's regulated in the United States, that's not true elsewhere. And when you think about the nature of the technology, it is itself a form of invasion. Like people who are listening to me right now, like maybe you have your earbuds in and it's like I'm in your head. It's like I am trying to get inside of behind your eyeballs. And before the people, early radio, you had to have headsets on. You didn't just listen to the speaker. So people would gather in their kitchen and they'd all put on their headsets and listen. And it was like in your kitchen, it had invaded your home. Uh, the concern that early social scientists had, because all the social science research and radio early on was that it would, it would be a tool for propaganda. It, mm -hmm. it, how could it not be, right? It could, that you there was no answer back. There was no page-by-page -page comparison, like different op-eds competing. Like it was just someone was in your head telling you something. And so in the United States, there are all these really quite ingenious efforts to counter that almost inherently propagandistic nature of the technology with format. America's town meeting of the air. Where... There was just a debate every week. You know, it was a live debate uh, before a live audience, and people would shout out questions after the debate took place. And then you were supposed to listen to it and then with your friends afterwards have your own debate. So, like, should the United States have compulsory national health insurance? It was a debate debated in the 1930s on the mm -hmm. radio. And you were supposed to have, like, a party at your local library and listen to it. <laughs> and, like, that, it was a way to sort of say, like, don't just listen, don't believe everything you hear on the radio, partly because... Once Hitler came to power, he appointed Joseph Goebbels as minister of propaganda. And basically from his desk, Goebbels could to broadcast to every German household. Ausdruck fand, 
in the Einführung der Wehrpflicht, der Schaffung einer neuen and- Luftwaffe. Not only that, I mean, this is a way to institute the, the, the fascist power of the state. That is what fascism is. Like, the state tells the people what to believe. But there was a propaganda campaign of long-range radio broadcasting into North and South America. And a lot of Americans listened to what they thought was radio from Europe but was Nazi radio and was just what was called at the time fake news because it was just broadcasts about, oh, well, the French have finally given in. I mean, it was just lies about stuff that had happened, but it was all about uh, an alleged Jewish world conspiracy. And uh, so the fascism in the United States that arose was hitched to that fake news that was being broadcast out of Germany. Wells, when he decided to do War of the Worlds, he later, you know, would say, he was trying to propose to sort of essentially vaccinate, to inoculate the American radio listener against fake news. So we're going to leave it right there with that uh, fake news sentiment for a moment. And we're going to come back and talk more with Harvard historian Jill Lepore about the Internet and how that has combined technology and politics. Um, And if you want to hear actual episodes of the 1930s radio debate program that we just talked about, we've got the link for you at innovationhub.org. You can hear debates about Social Security and whether machines will come to dominate men. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, continuing my conversation with Harvard historian Jill Lepore. And we're talking about how a bunch of technologies have been seen as great boons for politics until they turned out to have more downsides than maybe people anticipated. And actually, some drafters of the Constitution thought of that document as a machine, one that was designed to create the optimal political system. The abolitionist Frederick Douglass had great hopes for the equalizing power of photography and steamships and the telegraph. And President Herbert Hoover thought radio was going to be amazing. My fellow citizens, this broadcast tonight marks the beginning of the mobilization of the whole nation for a great undertaking to provide security for those of our citizens and their families who, through no fault of their own, face unemployment and privation during the coming winter. Except Hoover knew regulation of the airways would be key. And as radio and then TV spread across the country, networks were often restricted from embracing too much partisan political speech. But more than 50 years after Hoover gave that radio address that you heard, the term of another president, Ronald Reagan, brought the repeal of something called the Fairness Doctrine. And media outlets suddenly became freer to say what they thought. Hi, I'm Bill O'Reilly. Thank you for watching on our very first day. How did it happen? How did television news become so predictable and in some cases so boring? Well, there are That was the debut of Fox News in 1996, less than a decade after the Fairness Doctrine was repealed. And as Fox and then MSNBC turned into technologies that were married to politics, another technology was quietly rising, the Internet. Its seeds had been planted by a part of the Defense Department called the Advanced Research Projects Agency. So it was called ARPANET. But Lepore, the author of These Truths, A History of the United States, says many of the folks who were influential in those early days of the web's commercial development, they were people who chafed at the notion of 
any sort of governmental control. You know, no one could anticipate what has happened with the Internet. There's a whole lot of bits and pieces that go in to what we now call the Internet, which is what we mean includes the web and includes social media and includes access on our smartphones. I mean, even what the Internet means is like a much broad and sort of messy set of things rather than one thing, then they all have quite long origins. But in terms of a specific thing, which is opening the internet to commercial traffic, and then anybody can get an email address and can 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 browse what comes to be called the web. And how is that how is that going to work? The people who had been planning for that, the, that specific piece of what we mean when we say the internet, were some of them were anarchists or former anarchists, and but most of them were libertarians, and a lot of them were affiliated loosely with a think tank uh, with which Newt Gingrich was affiliated called, the, I think, the Progress and Freedom Foundation. What a lot of these people imagined was that this new space for communication would be a new political frontier that could finally realize the long-held conservative hope of essentially repealing the New Deal, creating a political space that was entirely unregulated, that was wholly market-driven. That's one of the big claims of, like, a Fox News, right? The reason Fox News, conservatives who went on to found Fox News wanted to repeal a fairness doctrine, they thought that ratings should decide what's on the news, Mm -hmm. not some government agency. So... They're libertarians who believe in the market, and they don't believe in government regulation. A lot of them had come out of the Reagan administration or had come into power through the Reagan revolution, someone like Gingrich, and they were thrilled to have this new terrain. It was like inventing a new universe where none of the old stuff that they objected to and were having a hard time dismantling existed, and they were damned if they were going to see it put there. And so... They, you know, write this Magna Carta that's about freedom, and they write all these manifestos, a Declaration of Independence for Cyberspace, in which they say governments of the world do not belong here. This is a space free from government. And some of this, you know, as has been really carefully traced in a wonderful book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture, the stuff that comes from Stuart Brand, a lot of these people were hippies in the 1960s, and then they became libertarians. A lot of hippies moved in that direction. It's not that far to imagine going. And for them, it's a kind of kumbaya space. For the libertarians, it's it's a space where commerce can be free. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what they get. And we live in what that looks like. So I think one of the things that people tend to believe now, and not wrongly necessarily, is that we're awash in news coverage, you know, all news uh, TV networks, news on the Internet. Um, And you've written that despite that, we perhaps do not seem to be paying attention um, to what all this technology all around us is doing, Um, at least not in the way that we should and maybe not even in the way that previous generations have uh, with the inventions around them. I think that's true. And I think also it's important to remember that our political community is a quite a different one. So I it's just this this seems pedantic and I'm a professor, so I'm a pen, so it comes kind of come across this way. But I do think it's an important reminder because people ask me all the time, has it ever been this bad? And like it the it sort of changes. Like sometimes the it is, you know, we're in these filter bubbles, or sometimes the it is you know, we're so polarized, or sometimes the it is, you know, in two thousand eight it was like is the economy crash has crashed so fast so right. before. 
Um, the it always changes, but the but the we seems to be just a pure fiction. So. If you can even ask that question, has it ever even been this bad before? Have our political arrangements ever been so out of whack? Yeah, like always up until, say, the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Like there is not a day before emancipation in 1863 that isn't a worse day than any day after emancipation. There's not a day during Jim Crow and segregation and the reign of lynching and the reign of terror against African-Americans that's not a worse day than what comes after that era. Uh, women don't have the right to vote until 1920. African-Americans are not guaranteed uh, free and full access to elections until 1965. Our voting rights are very much in question even today. When we talk about the challenges to the political community in the United States and what holds us together, these questions that you are raising, the we is much bigger. I mean, we've really only been a sort of fully enfranchised population where women and people of color can participate politically you know, for a couple generations. And those generations have been marked by a lot of political instability. Those are, the, you know, this is the era from, you know, beginning with Vietnam and Watergate down to the Tea Party and Trump. And there has been, you know, there's a lot of economic growth, but there's widening economic and income inequality. So, yes, this is rough. <laughs> this is rough. But we are all in it. So then if we take kind of a final snapshot of where our politics stand right now against this historic backdrop um, and in terms of the current technology that underpins what we've got going on, um, and that technology could be campaigns knowing everything about us or, as we talked about at the beginning, like Trump taking his case right to Twitter. Um, How do you think about where we're headed? Uh, I mean, you certainly have written with um, some pretty deep concern and alarm about – the role of technology in politics right now. So I, I, to celebrate the end of 2018, I read a book called Toward the Year 2018 that was written in 1968. That was so fun because it's just like, all right, being a historian is no fair. Like you can't like, of course, everybody's prediction was wrong. Like it's like bad <laughs> manners even to point that out. Like we're all going to be wrong. Every, you know, that's why I punditry drives me. It's like the next day all these people are proven to be wrong and they still have their jobs. Like I don't even understand how that's possible. But I, what do I know? I don't know. You know, like I couldn't have designed the Internet differently. It's I'm a historian. I have the privilege of sitting here and saying, God, that was crazy. Look at that. It has had all these terrible consequences. So like at first, just like a pause for just like a moment of solemn humility. But reading this book, toward the year 2018 was really instructive because uh, a guy I happened to be studying, Ithiel de Solapool, who was a political scientist at MIT, uh, who was a scholar of mass communications and an early advocate of ARPANET and wrote some very prescient stuff about email and privacy in the 1970s. He, in 1968, asked to write about the future of social science, essentially, wrote this quite chilling thing in which he said, look, by 2018... There will be devices that connect us all to one another that can gather information about you, even without your acknowledgement, or even without, can gather information about you, even without your knowledge, and maybe against your will. And also, a lot of information will just be gathered passively. Like, for instance, if you're driving down a street and you stop at a traffic light, the traffic light would actually count your car and maybe notice that there aren't other cars coming. And so, just stay red for longer or, you know, there's just going to be extraordinary quantities of data because get this, he says in 1968, by 2018, it'll be cheaper to store information on a computer than on paper. And it'll be very easy to gather. And he, see, so he writes this like, just, it's just like hair 
you know, the hair in the back of your net rises when you It's like, in 2018, I could sit at my desk at a computer that is connected to all the other computers in the world, and I could look you up, and I could find out that you have a low IQ and that you're unemployed and that your mother is on welfare, and I could decide not to give you a job because I think you're a bad risk and, I, and I'm not going to give you credit. And you wouldn't have had to even give me any information. I can decide without even meeting you. I can decide without even hearing your story. And Poole says, and I think, you know, very fair-mindedly, we're going to be able to do that in 2018. The question is, should we be able to do that? And it's like, like, drop yeah. mic. Like, it's just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, they knew. They knew. You know, someone who was very involved in uh, thinking about the politics of technology can actually anticipate, right? Like, so the sense that we have now, I think that, Oh, well, Facebook, I mean, you know, so they were young and they didn't think about Facebook newsfeed and they didn't think that trending topics would be a problem. And, you know, they got distracted by Nipplegate or whatever excuses you want to make for the Facebook people. Actually, no. I mean, they could have read a book written in 1968 and seen this coming. Like, that's like it's read a book. (laughs) Jill Lepore is a professor of American history at Harvard. She's the author of These Truths, A History of the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you. You can find more information about ARPANET, the predecessor to the modern-day Internet, which was funded by the government, at our website, innovationhub.org. And we'll also have more details there about that book that Lepore mentioned, which in 1968 tried to predict the future. It's called... Toward the year 2018. It's rare that a man tries to kill his wife, and then they live happily ever after. But that's what happened to a man who couldn't give up betting and his wife who suspected he was spiraling deeper into debt. Darling, what's happened to your tongue? Oh, I suppose you disapprove of my betting? Uh, Not with 2,000 quid in her lap, she doesn't. Oh, come on. Smile. I know I've been naughty, but look, it's all for you. Ah, I see. That, that's Johnny. Go on, darling, smile. Johnny, where did you get the 200 pounds? The wife worried, not unreasonably, that her husband desperately needed her money and that he might do anything to get it. Marrying you is the one thing I've never changed my mind about. Do you really mean that, Johnny? Yes, I really mean that. I want nothing but to spend the rest of my life with you. And if you were to die first, die. The man, as you may have guessed if you watch old movies, was Cary Grant. And his wife, at least in the 1941 film Suspicion, was Joan Fontaine. And that movie, says scholar William Flesh, tells us something intriguing about how our brains work. 
Cary Grant always, he was a great, great actor, and he always wanted to challenge himself. So Hitchcock in Suspicion decided to do a particularly cruel Hitchcockian twist, which is to make everyone suspicious that Cary Grant might be trying to poison his wife and then have that turn out to be true. The movie was based on a novel in which the husband kills the wife. But the problem for director Alfred Hitchcock was that his employers were having none of it. Even though, mind you, the movie portrays Grant as an endlessly crafty man with a lot to hide. He keeps doing these suspicious things and everyone around him, including her, everyone around him is getting more and more suspicious. And then in the original version of the movie, he the, the movie has a very, very famous shot of Cary Grant coming upstairs holding a glass of milk, which may or may not be poison. And in fact, Hitchcock sh- did that shot with a light bulb in a glass painted white. So you can see it glowing on the screen as he's coming up the stairs. So in the original movie, it was poisoned. Good night, Lena. And he gives her the milk, and she drinks it, and she dies. And there's a little twist at the end, which is how Cary Grant gets gets caught. But it turns out, yes, he's a murderer. So Hitchcock showed this to a test audience, and they hated it, and the producers hated it. And what they basically said is, you had us suspicious all the way through that he was guilty, so of course we expected him to be innocent. After all, Flesh Notes, this was Cary Grant, one of the most beloved movie stars in Hollywood. Audiences believed in him. They loved him. They knew that despite all the misdirection, they could trust him. He wasn't someone who'd poison his wife. Flesh, who's a professor of English at Brandeis University and the author of the book Comeuppance, says we love fiction not necessarily because we identify with characters, which is what many have argued. We don't necessarily think we are Cary Grant but because we assess characters and we get really annoyed if others don't share our assessment. So that ending, um, in fact, was trashed. It doesn't exist anymore. It was shown to a test audience, and they really, really hated it. And so Hitchcock and the producers decided that they would have to redo the end of the movie. And what that meant was explaining every suspicious thing that Cary Grant had done throughout the movie. Of course, the, what, what makes it a good story is that Hitchcock was such a good storyteller that he found a way to very quickly give other reasons for everything that Cary Grant had done that turned out to make him a good guy rather than a bad guy. So there is a story where we really, where audiences, by we I mean the original audiences, really, really, really didn't want the person we trusted to turn out to be a bad guy. We really, really, really wanted the suspicion to be wrong. We really wanted the person who was suspicious to realize that she was wrong. And we really wanted him to forgive her once she realizes that she was wrong. And then they live happily ever after. Biologists and scholars of literature have thought for a long time about why we tell each other stories, why we get absorbed by them, why we feel fear or joy, even when we know that the people in front of us are just actors on the screen or pictures on a page. And there are a bunch of answers to why we tell stories. They can reflect our own lives. They can be storage containers for the histories or myths of certain groups or nations. But Flesh felt like that wasn't a good enough explanation for the question that he had. 
why do we want characters to get what they deserve, both good guys and bad guys? Well, he says, it starts with a bet. There's a kind of pleasure like the pleasure of guessing the answer to a riddle if we, are, if we have better judgments than others. If our judgment is right and um, this other character who's so complacent and so full of himself and so sure that his cynical judgment is right if that person turns out to be wrong. Which was why ordinary people were heartbroken when they learned that their trust in Cary Grant had been misplaced. His overly suspicious wife was right. And it's why they changed the ending of the movie. Johnny, you mean you're going to... Johnny, why were you asking Isabel those questions about the poison? What were you planning to do with it? Johnny, you were going to kill yourself. My darling, my darling. Yes. Johnny, if I'd only known, this is as much my fault as yours. Flesh says agreeing on the bets that we make is important. Knowing who the good and bad people are... That holds a community together. If we can't agree on who's trying to swindle us and who's trying to help us, we're in for a world of hurt. What you have to do is have people who are watching out for liars. And even if the lie isn't something that is told against them, they have to um, want to, um, to punish or to unmask liars anyhow. And so... Everyone is always minding everyone else's business just because we feel we've evolved um, for really interesting reasons to really not like seeing someone cheating someone else. Even if we're not the one being cheated, if we see a cheater and if we see that a trusting person is losing to a cheater because that person is trusting the cheater too much, that gets our dander up. That means that we're looking to reward people who have a kernel of good inside them. And we like characters and fellow audience members who put wagers on heroes from Oliver Twist to Batman, even when much of the world can't see what we see in those heroes. We're looking to reward people with promise, just as we might in the real world. Promise that, at the very least, we and the author know is there. And the perfect movie for this is Casablanca. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Where um, Rick, the Humphrey Bogart character in Casablanca... When they come to get me, Rick, I hope you'll be more of a help. ...begins by saying, I stick my neck out for nobody. I'm sorry there was a disturbance, folks, but it's all over now. Everything's all right. He's a bitter character, and he has reason to be bitter. And part of what we think about Rick or Humphrey Bogart, because he's Humphrey Bogart after all, is here is a really hard-boiled, charismatic person who really knows the world better than anyone else. And while he's not going to cheat anyone, that's part of what makes us like him from the start, is he doesn't cheat others. Um, he is also not going to stick his neck out for others because he's too cynical to think that anyone is worth sticking his neck out for. But even so, lots of us, either because there are flashes of good in Rick or because we like Humphrey Bogart and his charisma, make a bet on him. You yourself are showing that you are sustaining trust, that you have a kind of charisma yourself which is that you are sustaining your trust that Rick in the end will come through and do the right thing, which requires some self-sacrifice on his part. And the names are Mr. and Mrs. Victor Laszlo. But 
Why my name, Richard? Because you're getting on that plane. I don't understand. What about you? I'm staying here with him till the plane gets safely away. No, Richard, no. What has happened to you? Last night, Last we said... Last night, we said a great many things. At the, in the case of Casablanca, it's a self-sacrifice of deciding what to do with the uh, letters of transit that he has, um, which is not to use them for himself. Inside of us, we both know you belong with Victor. You're part of his work, the thing that keeps him going. If that plane leaves the ground and you're not with him, you'll regret it. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life. But what about us? We'll always have Paris but that you are waiting and you have more faith than others in what Rick is going to do. But in a, in a way, so they're kind of the people we're betting against when we bet on Rick or the people we're betting against when we bet on Oliver are the other characters in the movie or in the novel who don't think they're going to do the right thing, um, but also the other members of the audience in our world who don't think that they're going to do the right thing. And the people we're betting on is we're betting on Rick or on Oliver, um, but we're also betting on those who think, let's say, other members of the audience, whether in the book or movie or in the theater with us who think they will do the right thing. And ultimately, we're also betting on the storyteller. Right. One funny thing about fiction is that even though it kind of, you know, obviously bears a lot of similarities to real life, these things could happen in real life, mostly, probably not Batman, but um, is <laughs> <laughs> probably, I'm saying, um, yeah. is that there's this kind of strangely disempowering aspect of fiction. Like in real life, you could stand up and say, no, stop bothering that person or no, this person is trustworthy or, you know, you, presumably you might be able to do something. But in fiction, you are behind the wall and you have to watch people do things you know is are you, things you know are wrong and inappropriate and mean. And there's just nothing you can do about it. And I wonder how that factors in. In some ways, it seems like a little bit of torture, right, and, yeah. as opposed yeah. to reality. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. You know, the the thing in reality that's most like that is waiting for the next election. Um, yes. But um, True. I, I, <laughs> I, um, I think that, that that's absolutely right. And I think that this is a case where what you're seeing is what art does in general, which is it takes an experience from life that is usually embedded in a whole complex entanglement of other experiences um, so that it's hard to have that to feel that experience in a pure way. And um, when you are watching a movie or a play or reading a book, it can't be entangled in various ways that you might be able to intervene. I have to say that I think sports is like that also. That, yes, it's, um, yeah, exactly. You're not on the field. You cannot help people. Yeah. You're disempowered, right? But, but I think sports is a little bit of an intermediary example because you can do the wave or you can cheer or you can yell. And even though it's doing almost nothing, you feel like <laughs> you're still participating a little bit. Huh. Um, but when you you don't yell at plays, um, if you go see a play, whatever else you do, you don't start yelling at characters on stage. Right, right, right. You can yell at your TV but it's partly that yelling at your TV, no one's hearing – no one can hear you yell when you scream at your TV. Right. Um, and so what we get instead is the experience of a very strong impulse to make 
something come out right, along with a sense that we have to entirely trust on what someone else is doing. But that trust isn't passive because we feel that um, we are we're actually betting. We're not only trusting, but we're betting. And so we're putting our emotional money where our desire is. Um, We're giving this thing our attention because we're betting our attention. We're betting our emotion. We're betting how much we care on the idea that the person we trust will turn out or the author, the director, the character will turn out to be trustworthy. And as I say, we're that bet is not only a private bet, um, but it's a bet against others. It's a bet right. against those who don't um, have as much faith as we do. Okay. And it's when we still hope against hope, even in that situation, that we're putting our own judgment, our own emotion, our own passion, our own sense of reality on the line. And then if we win that bet, we feel really, really vindicated. William Flesh is the author of the book Comeuppance and a professor of English literature at Brandeis University. William, thanks for being here. Well, thank you. It, it was a pleasure. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. All that you can rely On our Facebook page, we've got more on why we root for the underdog, both in real life and in fiction. That's all at Facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. And finally today, a postscript to a segment we aired a couple of weeks ago about the race to get ahead in math. When I grow up, I definitely want to be kind of an inventor, but also an aeronautical engineer. And the math that I'm learning now has a lot to apply to aeronautics, especially in the geometry part of it. That's 10-year-old Sebastian Sobe, one of a growing number of students studying at the Russian School of Mathematics. It offers extracurricular enrichment, and along with other after-school and weekend math programs, it has grown tremendously during the past several years, especially in affluent suburbs across the country. We heard positive things from a number of parents who have their kids in those kinds of programs, but we also got this comment via Twitter from Blair Banks. I wish there were more affordable options for math enrichment. My eight-year-old girl loves math, but the school discontinued math enrichment. She says that the Johns Hopkins Center for Talented Youth that her daughter qualifies for is costly. If we want girls to stay in love with math, Banks says, we need to nurture that love. And while the race to get years ahead in math is the issue for some students, for others, math can inhibit great dreams. Mathematics is well recognized as the academic subject area that is the biggest barrier to students' access to higher education as well as completion. That's Carolyn Landell, the managing director of the Dana Center at the University of Texas and an expert on math and science education. So it's a huge problem and is just an enormous equity barrier to students really uh, Uh, getting an education beyond high school and getting access to uh, jobs in the workforce that have potential for mobility. She says that in our community college system, more than 60 percent of students can't qualify for entry-level college math. So they're being placed in a developmental set of sequences uh, that are intended, that were designed and intended to give them an opportunity to get their skills up 
but unfortunately many of those students get enrolled in those um, pre-college course sequences and never make their way out of them. So of the 60% of kids who enroll in them, uh, few of them make it through that first year of, of math and even fewer still ever than complete a degree because that particular course sequence is ultimately a barrier. Landell says math is the number one subject area stopping community college students from getting a degree. And it's not just a degree that they're losing. So they're accumulating debt and time toward a degree, and this particular content area ends up being a barrier, and and they uh, have spent time and resources, both of which are limited for many of these students, uh, and never actually earn their degree at the end. Over the past few years, Landell has been part of a movement for change, partially because the remedial courses weren't working. In fact, slowing kids down and pulling them back was less successful than a more fast-paced plan. The other part has been to say, let's look at math in a new way. Uh, Historically, we've all kind of had the algebraically intensive math as the model. You know, algebra one, geometry, pre-calc, that kind of path. Well, if you look at the workforce today, mathematics looks different in different kinds of work contexts. Statistics and statistical reasoning are a really fundamental way of thinking mathematically and numerically and quantitatively in fields like psychology and nursing and journalism, right? So pre-calc and calc might not be the right or relevant math for kids who are pursuing that, but yet that's been the default path as rigor and college-ready. Carolyn Landell is the managing director of the Dana Center at the University of Texas. She works on a movement called Math Pathways, meant to stop math from being the prime academic barrier to college degrees. You can read more about it at our website, innovationhub.org. There, we will also have a link to our original story about the spread of extracurricular math programs in high school and elementary school. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also got production help this week from Wen Lei and engineer John Parker. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.